This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Kevin Baker about a book that, this is an unusual case because I actually know this book really well, having been its publisher. Uh, it's called The Fall of a Great American City, New York and the Urban Crisis of Affluence. Um, this was, It's based on an article that Kevin wrote um, and it was published in 2018 by Harper's Magazine. And I saw that or read that piece and thought, this is an important piece of writing. And aside from the circulation of the Harper's Magazine, which is substantial, we th I thought we could make this into a book. And thus we have done. How are you, Kevin? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for publishing. <laughs> well, I'm actually really honored to publish this book. Um, I think, you know, I, I was born in New York City. Oh, yeah? I think, and my grandparents lived here. My, you know, I, I feel connected to New York, even though I don't live in New York City. Um, but it's an important subject. I think it's yeah. it, th what you're talking about, and we. I'm going to let you actually talk about it rather than me, but is something that applies not just to New York. Even though the book is about New York and the experience of New York City, it is a much, I think it suggests a bigger topic about American cities in general um, and how we live together and how our corporate and political culture uh, is really changing our daily lives in these, I mean, obviously does do that on a regular basis, but I think you should talk a little bit about the thesis of the book, and then I can ask you some questions about it. Sure. Uh, very much so, David. Uh, I was not born in New York, although both my parents were in Washington Heights and Fordham Road. Uh, but I've been living here now for 43 years, uh, most of that time in one apartment in one neighborhood, and the changes have been remarkable. And as you say, this is something that's afflicting so-called successful cities all over the country. It seems we have two fates for cities now. Either they become complete disaster areas, like Detroit and to a lesser degree places like uh, Cleveland or St. Louis, you know, still terrific, terrific places to live filled with terrific people, but really hard-pressed, poor, crime-ridden, or you have the big success cities. And these are places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, Boston, and New York. And what success tends to mean is more and more, well, like in my neighborhood, uh, millionaires, at least property millionaires, living over empty storefronts. You know, it looks on the first floor, it looks like the Depression. <laughs> and up above, uh, you know, good times roll. You know, it's, it's more and more this crazy disparity and we know there's a whole huge disparity in the country, uh, a huge disparity of wealth in the country in general. You really see how big the gap is in uh, in America's cities now. And well, one of the things you talked about at the very beginning of the book, which I think is important, is the um, the cost of renting in mm -hmm. cities, which. Yeah. New York is very much emblematic of, um, yes. you know, two of my children live in New York, so I'm intimately aware of the economics of renting. Um, and, of course, it's different if you're buying the, the ownership right. um, story for people who buy it, but it's similar, and that is the extraordinarily high prices for renting or buying affects San Francisco pretty notably uh, has its oh, own yeah. story. Yeah. Um, but I think in New York, the majority of people who live here rent. 
Yes. Yep. The majority do rent. And but rent is now up to I think I have the figure in the book. I think it's something like the average rent now is like thirty five thirty a month. Yeah, it's in the yeah. Uh, and many places, of course, it's higher than that. And as a percentage uh, of the income, more and that's more. a significant yeah. issue. I, I think. mean, those New Yorkers who do not live in very rent stabilized apartments or do not have some kind of subsidy in public housing are paying sixty five percent of their income now in rent. Uh, it's very common now. Used to, the rule of thumb used to be your rent should not exceed one week. Right. You know, one one paycheck out of four in a month. Uh, then it became one-third. Now a lot of New Yorkers pretty routinely are paying about half their income Which is in rent. In, in, incredible. Also, when you recognize that if you live in New York... City, uh, the city has income tax. Yeah, um, state has income tax. Right, you pay federal income tax. So, when you're done paying your taxes yeah. and your health insurance and your rent, um, it, there's not a lot left over. And you used to be able to deduct at least all the state and local taxes from your federal income tax. Thank you, President <laughs> Trump, for screwing <laughs> exactly. New York uh, in retribution for losing the election in this state. Exactly. The right wing in this country, which pretends to believe in states' rights, is actually trying to force a red state model on these blue states. So that's another burden you have. Uh, it, it's somewhat mysterious to me that New York businesses do not work against this or protest against this because more and more, I, I don't see where people uh, have the wherewithal to spend money on anything else. Uh, well, yes, you, know. you would think that it would affect the general commerce. It probably does. I think that's part of the story that you tell in this book as well, and that is yeah. who's buying things in the city? Yeah. Um, who, what is the nature of the city? And that's something you get at. You know, cities are complex. Right. Right. They're places where people live, work, um, enjoy culture, and thrive. Yeah. Um, that seems to be, you know, I think the ultimate thesis of your book is that that's being threatened. Pretty now, much. you also recognize, and I think it's important to point out, that cities go through periods of right. uh, success right. and 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 lack of success. They can be livable and then not livable. You know, we all, I think many people can remember when New York was a disaster. You know, right. And, and right. you acknowledge that. It's not that always looking back, oh, the city was fantastic. It was right. always better right. in the past, <laughs> and it's always worse in the present. Yeah. That, I think, is a fallacy. Um, it is true that people who have been here for a fairly short period of time have no reference point. And if you haven't lived, if you didn't have family here or know intimately the history of the city, you might think back to earlier times as always being better. Yes, and, uh, you know, in, in fact, cities are kind of the, the canaries in the coal mine for economies. We think of them as big and impenetrable and, you know, just impervious to, to uh, problems, but they're not. You know, for instance, 1945, the end of the war, New York is the only major world city that's unbloodied and unbowed, hasn't been occupied, hasn't been bombed, uh, and it's the leading manufacturing city in the world. A million industrial jobs. So when deindustrialization happens, uh, this is a direct hit the city takes. The city is really out in the forefront uh, taking the changes that are going to happen to America. And New York, too, like many major cities in America, was expected to serve both as an economic driver and a poorhouse for decades and decades. You know, the poorest people in the city, in the country, came here 
and and you know that was great in many ways. They're people who had ambition. They were right, striving. It's they city were of opportunity. City of opportunity. Right. But you know, but that is we're absorbing lots of poor, a lot of people that don't have skills necessarily, and at the same time, uh, we're supposed to be, you know, driving this huge amount of money. You know, it's it's very indicative, I think. That even at, at the you know nadir of New York in 1975, when the city almost went bankrupt, uh, it was paying out millions and millions more in state and uh, federal taxes, you know, than it was taking in. So here were you know Washington and Albany making out that we were these spendthrift, uh, irresponsible people, and in fact we're <laughs> we're still throwing money at them. Uh, so this was a model that really was difficult to kind of, uh, you know, keep going here. And by 75, you had for the first time, you didn't, with deindustrialization, you didn't have a lot of low-skilled starter jobs that people could get into and work their way up to the middle class. The factories were going, uh, the port, which employed an enormous number of people, very brutal conditions often, but, you know, they were jobs. That had gone. You had container ships, the port moves to Newark and Elizabeth. You know, all these jobs well, were on the vanishing. Navy yards. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're down to now, I think the last figure was 250,000 industrial jobs. And it's probably less than that, probably fewer than that by now. But, you know, this is a huge transition, and New York was undergoing it. And at the same time, you had, for the first time, you had drugs, and you had easy access to guns. So you had this this spike in violence, and people were you know blaming this on the city itself, and certainly there were things New York could have done differently or done better, but this was going to be hard for any city to manage, and not surprisingly, pretty much every city in the country went through some version of this: crime spikes, murder spikes, riots. Uh, you know this this should have told people something. Now the city bounce back from that in many great ways. Uh, and, and again, I'm, you know, one of the things I write in the book is, uh, I, you know, I realize the parts of the city that I loved being young here, and, and all, which is different than the parts of the city that really were dysfunctional. You know, the city's, I, I'm not at all uh, sad to see the crime rate be about, you know, see the murder rate be about a sixth of what it was in the, uh, I think the peak was about 1989, you know. Uh, very glad to see that. Very glad, glad that it's cleaner, better run in many ways. Um, you know, this was all good. But uh, at the same time, you have to, you know, think about what was lost. And the great thing about that city I first moved to in 1976 was it was a uh, tremendously vibrant place. It was attracting all sorts of interesting people from all over the world, young people, older people. Uh, and it was a very cheap city. You could go out and see great films, go to fantastic restaurants, uh, see Broadway theater for very little money. First Broadway uh, show I saw after moving here was Equus, where because they had a background uh, of people on stage, you could you paid three dollars and you go sit you know practically right next to the actors. So this was uh, this was a terrific city to be in in many ways. The problem was how to preserve that and how to correct the social dysfunction. And I think in many ways, we we didn't get it right. So I think in some ways, what's happened 
and, and I'm not sure I'm right about this because I'm, you know, I'm not an economist, mm-hmm. but does it seem that a lot of the things that were kind of common activities, the day-to-day cultural activities, right. which were relatively affordable, were transformed into tourist gener- uh, tourist revenue-creating projects like uh, Radio City Music Hall and the theaters mm-hmm. that you're talking about and uh, rock and roll and shows at, at Madison Square Garden and the opera and all that stuff became... Um, transformed into attractions rather than day-to-day activities. So if you live in New York City and you wanted to go to the theater every single week, you would be broke. Um, Whereas in in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you probably could afford to absorb culture on a regular basis. Uh, But it's now been priced out of the range of most people. And I suspect, and it seems that's another theme of the book, and that is the the way the city has gone to becoming this sort of modern uh, international city where um, a lot of the real estate now belongs to people from all over the world. This has been going on for a long time. And the worst people. Uh, Well, (laughs) even without categorizing them as as the worst people, they're the super wealthy. Yes. Um, They could come from any, you know, all over the world. It's just like London. Right. Uh, It's just like... um, Paris, where the, it's it attra- the brilliance of the city and the ever rising values created a marketplace which is attractive to international wealth, and uh, that has this negative effect on the livability because regular people cannot afford to live in the places where now they've been moved, taken over by rich people. Very much so, and I make the point, uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg, when he was mayor, said that at one point he wished all the billionaires in the world would move here. Well, you know, we, we all like to live with our own, but, uh, you and know. in some ways he, he's made that happen. <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, the he city did. has made that happen, but, um, and it is a sort of effect that you're describing, which is money attracts money. Right. But it's even worse in the sense that these are not your grandfather's billionaires. You know, uh, New York has been a what was called a headquarters town for a long time. It's been a glamorous international city for a long, long time. The thing was, in the past, billionaires or multimillionaires would move here, and they would get some of the best architects in the world to build themselves a, an office tower or or a uh, mansion, you know, or a transportation hub. They would employ a small army of people to, uh, you know, to teach their kids and run their household and all this. You know, these could be pretty ruthless people. These were robber barons and all. But they were bringing a lot to the city as well. Uh, Today's billionaires are much worse. They're not here for the most part. True, they they have no connection. And in fact, the other thing I thought you were going to mention is that the people like the Vanderbilts and such um, gave back to yeah. the cities and to the country, um, recognizing that their wealth uh, came from the opportunity that they were afforded here. Yes. So yeah. they would build um, uh, museums and they would build right. um, libraries and they would support the the um, uh, the cultural activities of a city in Very a way much. that you can't really find as readily. Now, that's not to say not ever, but right. now, of course, they'll, they'll want to build a wing onto the New York Public Library and have it named after them or something like that. Right, 
right? Which is fine too. Philanthropy changes, but in the past you did have, you know, you know, Carnegie Hall came from Andrew Carnegie, right. uh, Grand Central Terminal, one of the most beautiful buildings ever built in the Western world, with a statue of Cornelius Vanderbilt out in front of it because he built it. You know, these are people who exploited many other people as well, but they at least were doing something, if only for their own vainglory or their right. own purpose, you know, whatever. There was a certain amount yeah. of self-promotion in yeah. that, but it did have, it was a different approach. There was also that, it was a kind of era, if you think back to the Gilded Age of the late 19th century, which is a similar period to our own in many ways, they they had still the feeling or, or the the um, notionality of either noble, you could call it noblesse oblige, yeah. or you could call it a sort of moral uh, sensibility yeah. that required uh, doing good in return for having yes. good happen to yeah. you. If only protection money, you know, to well, save true. off revolution. But yeah, there are all yes. these Rockefeller Center. There were all these things that the the rich built that were, you know, pretty amazing. Uh, today, more and more, we don't even know who they are. This sort of land banking goes on, often under the names of people who are actually, the term for it actually is, you know, mystery buyer. These are some of the wealthiest people from around the world. They're often kleptocrats. Uh, and again, they're not here. They're not even here to spend in the stores and contribute to the economy. No, it's money yeah. laundering, basically. In fact, that's been in the news recently yeah. as we speak. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know there, are, there are a lot of stories about the way that um, New York real estate has changed hands. You know, bags of money, literally yeah. bags of money. Yeah, these are, these are both bolt holes and investments, and nobody is there. You know, there, there was, there's some census figure, which I have in the book, that from uh, uh, 49th Street to 70th Street, 5th to Park, about one-third of the apartments now are occupied two months or less by the people who own them, which is amazing. The same thing goes on in London. Uh, you know, these people from all over come and grab this space and hold it. Somebody who was very uh, some New York Post uh, columnist who was very critical of the original magazine article for this, uh, huffed and puffed that, like, well, this is capitalism. You know, what do I expect? And, it's you know, the thing is, it's not capitalism. It's feudalism. It's pre-capitalism. It's the idea of the king's preserve. The king can, you know, go in and claim land, and you can't even go hunt on it while he's gone. And this is, this is what this is. These are people seizing huge pieces of this land. They're often not citizens in they're, you know, they often have no connection to and just holding on to it. And every one of them diminishes uh, New York City a little bit more. Well, and, and I, I think the notion that, you know, oh, it's just capitalism, you know, we have no control over right, right. what happens, therefore, because the no, that, that defense is made um, as a way of sweeping aside all form of criticism or or of um, regulation. And I think you alluded to this earlier, and that's... E e any uh, intelligent, wealthy person right. should realize that um, they have self-interest. Yeah. That the idea that you can, you know, that you can keep all of the all of the majority of people uh, um, fooled right. forever right. is ridiculous. Right, and you know, capitalism is a magnificent machine that, if you don't keep your uh, eye on it, will take you right over a cliff. You know, it's not, it doesn't have a morality of its own. We have to supply that. 
We right. have to supply the regulations we need. Well, on and it, also you know. the, the assumption is in the kind of inherent basis of capitalism is that uh, greed is uh, that that simply um, money is the only measure of happiness right. or right. success. And yeah. since we know that that's not true, um, any form of economics needs to have within it um, valuation of other things than simply uh, success yeah. in, in making money. Yeah, and I, and I think that's very true. And I think one of the things going on here is uh, a system that's gotten out of control even from the leading capitalists. I mean, I'm amazed there are these, these apartment buildings now in my neighborhood that the buildings, the original apartments sold for about one to four million dollars. And at the same point, this around the same time, um, all of these terrific local shops, butcher shops, bakeries, restaurants, uh, all kinds of things, all went out of business. Now, I don't think these people are paying this sort of money to live in an area where they get, at best, things you have in your average American suburb. You know, where there's a, a huge pharmacy and a Starbucks and everything, and even those, by the way, are now going out of business because the rents are too high. But you know, I don't, I don't think these people moved in here, paid that money to live in a, uh, you know, in you know, a basically a capitalist desert. You know, right? No, that's. I think that's an important <laughs> you know, point. A shopping that, desert, right? You know, that it's yeah. that even if even self interest alone um, requires yeah. one to pay attention to yeah. the livability of the city. Because if you want to keep your property values high, right. you need to have a place that people want to come to. Yeah. Um, it, it, it works in the suburbs that people have to invest in their schools right. in order for those places to be meaningful. People move to the suburbs to have good schools, and if the schools aren't good, then no one comes there. So right. the argument to the taxpayer in those locales is pay the taxes so the schools will be good, so your property Yes. <laughs> your property values will stay high. Yeah. The same thing should be true in New York, and that is anyone who lives here has self-interest right. in ensuring uh, or, or uh, uh, helping there to be a livable city. That, that a livable for all, not just livable for the few. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, and I think, though, that a lot of these people don't feel they have any control over this, the ones who who do hang around more than two months a year, but they don't feel they have any control over it. They don't know how to affect the system. And some of them, to be frank, uh, exploit the situation too. You know, the rules got changed a few years ago. It used to be that if you were in a co-op, you could only get 20% of your revenue from the first four stores. Uh, and the rules got changed where that could be any percentage of the building's revenue. So these people who were the tenants in many cases were the co-op owners. They saw the opportunity. They, they went and they drove these mom and pop right. businesses out of business, you know, charged them anything they wanted to. And, you know, to get higher rents from like a, you know, a, a bank branch or something. And they can then cancel their own uh monthly uh, maintenance fees or things like that. Right. But you know, see, this is this is kind of the short-term thinking that yeah. that typically makes uh mistakes in that have long-lasting uh negative right. uh, effects that are not necessarily um correctable in any reasonable way because when you drive a small business out of business by raising right. their rents, you don't get the same 
entities coming back. It, you know, if a like a business has been in the same family for two or three generations, oh, yeah. and the new generation sees, a, you know, well, what am I working for? I'm working to pay the rent. I'm not working to have a good time right. or to have some, you know, to enjoy myself or to create something meaningful. So they close the business, but they don't. It, it, then if the landlord realizes, well, we should have lowered. You know, we could we raise the rents too high. Let's lower them, which right. they never do, um, because maybe we can attract some somebody to come back, where are they going to find anyone? Well, exactly. And we, we saw this happen in our neighborhood, too. Uh, there was a whole plague of these big um, pharmacies, uh, pharmacy kind of slash quickie supermarkets uh, that came in about 20 years ago or so. And some people were protesting them. And once again, the capitalist pundits kind of, you know, uh, scoffed at that, the idea, oh it's, oh, it's capitalism, so there'll be a shaking out. Well, true, but what does the shaking out mean? It means 20 years after wiping out all the small businesses, now these huge pharmacies are starting to consolidate or just go out of business. And what does that leave? As you say, it's like too late for mom and pop to come right. back, you know. Well, no, and there's and nothing. There, and, yeah. and no mom and pop person is going to, you know, yeah. see that as an opportunity. Now there are exceptions to that. You can see yes. how yeah. culture is growing in places like Brooklyn, where there are opportunities for people to create businesses, right. Right. Um, where you know the real estate values are lower, the opportunities are greater. There's more industrial space. Long Island City, although possibly now already priced out of control, which leads us to maybe talking a little bit about uh, two things that you mentioned in the book that I thought were uh, still in the news, essentially, uh, and a third thing that I think we could talk about. And one is Amazon. The other is WeWork, which I thought was really interesting (laughs) that you talk, you're very critical of the WeWork conceptual framework right. at a time when you wrote that when their values were skyrocketing and the kind of general um the, the, the as they say the you know the common wisdom was this is a business and it, i think it was valued when you wrote the book at 20 oh, billion amazing. then it's 40 yeah. billion now as of today which is october 23rd 2019 i think the value today when uh softbank put a number on it was 7 billion so they've lost amazing um, 80% of their valuation um, in the last couple of months. And to give credit where credit is due, I think that was your suggestion first to write about the we, the we works and the we, we, we's of all kinds. We live, we learn, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite astonishing. And I, you know, I was out the other day to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, uh, which is how development should go in New York and many other places. Enormous Navy Yard, which built a lot of the Navy in the U.S. for years and years and years. Uh, Finally, there's no need for it anymore. And all these terrific small businesses, small manufacturing firms, and artists have moved in. They're terrific, you know, thing. My my friend Pamela Talese has a studio out there. Beautiful area, great for these people. But with the exception of WeWorks, then tried to build some huge We Live thing that's out there on... Uh, sitting on a dock, it's enormous, it's completely incongruous to the area, and now nobody's quite sure what will happen to it. Um, you know, this this sort of thing goes on. But w- what's essentially wrong about the, the we stuff and all these temporary places is that it's, again, eroding the idea of a community. I've, I've gone to work and, you know, worked on, uh, uh, done a little bit of consulting work on, like, a TV show, and gone to one of these places that used to be a factory building. And now it's set up for all these 
uh, various productions, commercials, TV shows, everything to come in and do auditions or do a, uh, you know, write on a show or something, which is fine. But again, the whole thing is always transitory. It's always passing, you know. And there are more and more stores like this now, stores that have these pop-ups. In some ritzy neighborhoods, it's, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow will have a new product out, and she has a pop-up store. My neighborhood is usually much more a kind of a cheesy Halloween costume store uh, that lasts a couple months, and that's it. But again, the whole thing is, it's, you know, the, the, the we live things sound like great fun if you want to continue the frat house experience from college on. For everybody else, it's not a way to build a community. It's simply a way to pass through. And that's the concept of so much going on in the cities now. That's why we have all these Airbnbs, which are ridiculous in, uh, in these cities. That's why you have these big temporary spaces. The idea is everything is temporary. Everything moves on. And how do you possibly build a community out of that? Right. No, that's a fair point. And I, I think the other thing that I wanted to mention is the notionality of um or, or the, the, this um it's the public use of public funds for developing what should be essentially private oh, yeah. enterprise yeah. Yeah. i mean it's sort of ironic too that we have in so-called capitalist system sure. uh essentially um the private sector stealing from the public the in time. order to build wealth for the private individual who uh, who owns it. And the, the sell to the community is this will benefit everyone. So it's worth the public investing in my private entity. Of course, you as an investor get nothing. You have no right. ownership right. and no control. Um, so you essentially are giving them money so that they can, on a, on a promise, you know, yeah. that they're going to... So you're an investor... Uh, in classical terms, but you're an investor without any control. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, really amazing. I mean, the, the, probably the worst example in New York right now uh, is uh, Hudson Yards, which I went go into in the book. Uh, and this is a development on the West Side docks, heavily subsidized, $6 billion in public money, some of which it was legitimate for the public to build out there, like moving the subway out there, uh, but a lot of which was not. And 90% of the people working there were brought from Midtown office buildings. You know, $6 billion to move people who are already working in New York about 10 blocks. You know, this is crazy. I mean, there's also lots of luxury housing, but it's uh, terribly ugly. It's really cut off physically from the rest of the city. It's really a huge way not to develop. Um, and the same thing goes on all over the place now in Long Island City, which is in Queens, of course, and which is a uh, a wonderful borough in many ways. You know, all this that we're talking about is kind of worse in Manhattan, but it's spreading. Brooklyn's becoming more and more like this. And now in Queens, you have in Long Island City, where Amazon was going to come in because, it, and they were going to get all kinds of tax breaks because it was supposedly a, you know, an opportunity zone, a poor, depressed area. It's not. It's full of skyscrapers now going up willy-nilly. Uh, but the idea is to kind of keep just crazily developing and overdeveloping and funding that. And now what happens with that, you know, the idea was the big critic, big criticism of cities and America in general by the right wing in the 1960s and 70s 
was that the welfare state was unsustainable, that we could not afford to do anything for the poorest people or do anything on this scale for the poorest people in the country. And I, I don't think that was accurate. But now the whole thing is you wonder, how, how are you going to sustain a city when everybody, every wealthy company, every wealthy individual has, has just got a huge tax break uh, to build themselves a luxury apartment or build themselves a luxury office building. You know, that every, every subsidy like that takes money away from things like public schools, from the public transit system. Uh, you know, it's it, the, another egregious example, the Atlantic Yards in, uh, in Brooklyn, this place where the air rights to the MTA were basically given away without a bidding contest. They were given actually there were actually two bidders, and they gave it to the low bidder, <laughs> just out of political influence. Uh, which uh, you know they built the Barclays Center uh, in an ugly arena for a bad basketball team, owned by originally a Russian oligarch, and now I think it's a uh, a Chinese businessman who's an apologist for the uh, Beijing regime, and and you know and in uh in oppressing uh, hong kong so you know this is we're spending public money for uh to give tossing it at already wealthy people who have terrible values and uh, you know this is this is idiotic so given that the next natural question is and of course there probably isn't time to go you know to go through all right. of the possible uh, solutions to this, but right. you uh, you do talk about um, you know you know you you do talk about that in the book some, right. and I think right. uh, I think it's a bigger subject than this book has room for. Right, <laughs> uh, but I I'm kind of curious to know your thoughts. You know, like okay, we know it. We've you can diagnose the problem. I think you have diagnosed it pretty well, um, although not in you know not in depth yeah. at this stage, yeah. but. What do you do? Yeah, there are solutions in the book that are mentioned. Uh, ones that far uh, more experienced people in dealing with urban problems than I am uh, have uh, have come up with. I think there are various solutions. I think one which is really considered anathema to the business community is a commercial rent control. Uh, and that's thought to be horrible. It will d destroy all these business things. Well, the reality was... Uh, New York had commercial rent control from 1945 to 1963. Uh, I don't know that it was the the source of the city's wealth, but this was the most general, generally prosperous, widely prosperous era in the city's entire 400-year history. So obviously, it didn't it, it didn't, didn't destroy wealth. It didn't right. hurt. You know? Right. Uh, other things I would say would be. Taxation, uh, in increased taxes on luxury apartments, taxes on apartments and, and businesses and lots that are left empty for extended periods of time. They just torn down three different large buildings in my neighborhood. And the word on the street is that they won't be building until they see if there's another recession or not. So what were three useful buildings have now been destroyed and are basically going to be empty lots for, oh, Three, four, five, ten years—you know, uh, this this has to stop. We, there are th steps we can take and do that. Another idea is instead of right now, New York subsidizes buildings that are mostly luxury housing if they turn over a certain percentage to affordable housing, 
And affordable is pretty high up, but you know what they think of as affordable. But rather than do that, I think the city would would be better off taking the money and just building its own public housing as it has done in the past and and still occasionally does. That would be a much uh, wiser use of that money, and let the uh, let the rich spend their own money building their Although, own. As you, I'm sh- a whole other subject for discussion, but that is the way that public housing has mm. been completely, um, essentially cast as uh, uh, terrible. Right. Wh- whereas, you know, I actually worked on a book about public housing a couple of years ago in New York, where mm-hmm. it was. An extraordinarily successful oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. project that, uh, when it and especially when it was first built yeah. uh, in the it, during the depression, public housing was really successful. New York has has always had, I think, the most successful public housing. Had the first public housing in the uh, in the country, and has always had the most uh, successful public housing. It's widely acknowledged. Uh, for instance, there are a number of public housing complexes in my neighborhood. They're fine. They're terrific. I go walk through them all the time. They're they're completely safe. They're clean. They're well kept up. You know this is, you know this is not a problem. There's been a scandal recently where it turns out one administration after another, going back to like Giuliani, uh, was not putting money in physical repairs to the buildings. And yeah, I guess if you neglect anything enough, it will. It will start well, to fall apart. Witness but, another subject yeah, that we well, didn't touch on, and yeah. that is the public transit system yes. in, in oh, New York. Yeah. I mean, a, you know, the biggest one in the world, and right. um, but suffered for, and we're still suffering today from years and yeah. years of underfunded uh, neglect. And this is the same thing. You know, I my, the last nine to five job I had was writing letters uh, in the mayor's office under Ed Koch. Uh, you know, met him once, told me all the people he was going to get in a very avuncular fashion. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I would write these letters. And one of the big things that happened at the moment was the bridges were really in trouble because under various fiscal crises, the, the mayors had just let the bridges, the regular maintenance, go neglected. So they were worried that places like the Manhattan Bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, were going to fall down. And... Of course, they didn't, but of course, the amount of money you had to spend making sure they didn't, after all that neglect, was exponentially higher. It's the same thing with the subways, which really came back from their low in the in the mid-70s and were functioning very well. And as you say, it's the most extensive system. It's I think it's the only one open 24 hours a day. Uh, and it was really looking good. I mean, people had put money in it, and then they stopped putting money into it again. And now it needs all these repairs, and it's slower. Still not as bad as it was in the seventies, but it's, you know, it's it's showing years of neglect. And what we will not, I will, I swear, we will not have time for in this conversation. But eventually, does need to be addressed, and that's how to make a sustainable city yes. uh, for the long term, especially yes. a city like New York, which is at sea level. Um, you know, oh, yeah. and we know that. Things are coming, and that's one of the issues for the subway systems. Um, you know, water is um, is not far away in a in a climate change environment. That's going to be the huge challenge for New York. Uh, you know, I was out uh, touring the uh, the East River with uh, with Mayor Bloomberg and some of his aides, and they were very aware of the problem. They did some things, but this was uh, you know they were talking about Hurricane Sandy, and they were talking about that as a one-in-a-hundred-year event. 
and they have no idea if that will be the case. This could become a one in ten year event. It could become a, 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 a could be every year event, right? Right. I, I think the predictions are that it will be. So I think yeah. your next book okay. will be the sustainable Great American <laughs> City. So, I so. <laughs> anyway, I I do hope that. Um, my listeners will want to go out and read this book, um, The Fall of a Great American City by Kevin Baker. It's terrific, and thank you for spending the time today. Find bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Kevin. Mm-hmm.